Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, lead pastor of Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith so you experience the goodness of God and the greatness of your unique voice in His kingdom. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at overflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional on amazon.com. As loud as you want to, as much as you want to, Jesus is alive and he's moving. I want to ask a question this morning. What does success look like for a follower of Jesus? Jesus said that he came that we would have life and life to its fullest, that we'd have life to the overflow, life to abundance. And, and my question is, how do we know when we're in it? What are the telltale signs of a life truly lived? There are a lot of people today that would say a life truly lived is, is coming in the pursuit of possessions to fill us with comfort and a life of status. But Jesus says that a man's worth does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Those aren't real riches. A lot of people say that what real success has is this drive to arrive at a respected position in life where you're wanted and you're respected and you know your place in the world. Yet Jesus was crucified outside of the gates of the city is an enemy of the very ones he came to save. Some people say that success is finding the right vocation, a job that you love, where you feel like you make a difference. If only I have that, then I've lived a successful life. But Jesus spent most of his life as a carpenter. And have you ever considered that there's not a single chair that we've ever seen that Jesus built that anyone has sat in? You look at his ministry, and in Jesus' three years of his ministry, he managed to take the crowds all the way down to 12. And of those 12, one of them turned him over to be killed, and the other 11 ran for their life. On Good Friday, Jesus' vocation did not look like it was doing so well. A lot of people say success in life is, is the freedom to go where I want to go and do what I want to do and just live my best life now. But Jesus said, I haven't come to do my will, but my Father's will. My question for us this morning is, what if victory and joy and fullness and success operate on an entirely different trajectory in the kingdom of God? We've been studying through the beloved Psalm 23, and as we've been walking through these last weeks, we get to move this morning from the valleys of the shadow of death to a much brighter, much higher place where we see the Lord vanquish our foes, promise to anoint our heads, Fill us with more blessing than we could possibly hold. Here's the big idea I want to share with us this morning. It's this. Jesus offers better than the fleeting and fading things the world calls success. But if we fail to see the difference, we will spend our lives desperate for things that will only leave us disillusioned, and we will miss delight. 
Jesus has come to offer us something better than what the world calls success. But if you walk as a consumer Christian and you miss the difference, you will spend your entire life desperate, running after something that even if you get it, even if you arrive at the pinnacle, it'll leave you disillusioned. And meanwhile, you'll find that you've missed the very delight he called you to live in. I want to pick up our message this morning in Psalm 23.5. says this, David continuing to write, he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, if you're like me, as soon as you hear this verse, you think immediately of one of two pictures. Either you think about a table in the field. Ah, an inviting space that looks like it's lifted right out of a Chip and Joanna Gaines magazine. So uh, me and Jesus in the field with a picnic. You either hear that, or all you hear is the presence of my enemies. And you think about a feast you'd really rather not go to. I want to tell you this morning that, that both of these pictures in some way are missing the deepest image that David is going after. In Psalm 23... I want to remind us that he's in the middle of this image of a good shepherd and sheep. He said that the shepherd leads the sheep through, uh, through valleys, and he leads them beside quiet waters. He takes them to fertile fields. He brings them rest. He protects them from the enemy. And then he says that he prepares the table. So I want us to know this morning that David's picture is not this. It's not a sheep sitting at a table with a fork and a knife going, here it is, it's grub time, me and Jesus. That's actually not the truest picture of what we're seeing. We're not seeing a table with silverware in a field. No, in fact, in Hebrew, the word table simply means this. It means a space to spread out and feast. See, for a shepherd, every time a shepherd would get through the valley of winter, he would take his sheep to a fertile high ground. It was a plateau called a mesa, which my Spanish friends will know is the word for table. I want you to listen to this direct account from a shepherd leading sheep. This is what Philip Keller says. He says, what David referred to as a table was actually the entire high summer range. Though these mesas may have been remote and hard to reach, the energetic sheep owner takes the time and the trouble to ready them for the arrival of his flocks. Early in the season, even before all of the snow has been melted by spring sunshine, the shepherd will make an expedition or two ahead of the sheep to prepare the tableland for them. See, the, the good shepherd is leading us right now, whether you know it or not. He is leading you through every shadow of every valley that feels anything like death. But you need to know something. That's not the end of the story. That not the destination. Somebody this morning needs to hear me. Your winter will pass. Your winter will pass. The shepherd is leading you through to the high ground of summer. But listen, first, right now in this season, he needs to prepare the table. There are things that he's doing right now, and I love this. Philip Keller goes on to write his experience of being a shepherd and what he learned of a, of a lifetime of studying shepherds. And he said that any good shepherd, there's four things they do to prepare the table when they're going from the valley of winter to the high place of summer. Now, anybody walk through some valleys of winter in your life? Yeah? Anybody be excited about God taking you to a high place of summer? Yeah? A place of feasting even in the presence of your enemies. Well, listen, if he's going to do that, he's got to prepare the table. 
And David got really excited, not because he saw a sheep with a fork and a knife, but because he understood what that actually meant. Would anybody in the room like to know it? Yeah. All right, so there's four steps of what a shepherd does when he goes to prepare a table. Number one, the shepherd will go in springtime ahead, and he takes a large supply of salt and minerals, and he places them all over the range at strategic spots so that the sheep will have the richest nutrients all summer. That's the first thing he does. The shepherd comes with salt, and he spreads salt across the field. We'll talk about why that's important. The second thing he does is the shepherd comes early, and he removes debris, twigs, and stones that are blocking up the water sources so that he can open up clear streams. The third thing the shepherd does is he eradicates poisonous weeds, or he defines the path so the sheep will know how to avoid them. In fact, Philip Keller shares that this work in particular is really laborious work. It's lots of bending down and pulling in many hours, and he says that what shepherds will do is take armfuls of poisonous weeds out of the field before he will ever allow the sheep to enter in. Somebody's getting where we're tracking this morning. The fourth thing the shepherd does is he scouts for predators at all watches, making his presence clear to the enemy and forming a defense to ensure the sheep's safety in this place of blessing. Anybody get it this morning? I want you to understand what's happening right now. If you say, I feel like I'm in a valley right now, the shepherd is stepping into the rooms of your coming season before you can even get there. He's placing all of the right nutrients, all of the right relationships, all of the right connections in all of the right places so that you will thrive. He's building your character so you can stay where he called you. Your shepherd is going ahead of you and he's removing the stuff that is blocking you from receiving the living water of his finished promises and his settled delight. He's uprooting the weeds and thorns and traps if you would let him. As Jesus says, he always lives to intercede for us. Just as he did for Peter, Jesus is praying that our faith in the valley would not fail, that we would understand that he is preparing the table, that there's a refining in this season. You say, I'm going through hard lessons right now. I'm going through a time of discipline right now. I'm going through a time that feels embarrassing right now. What you need to understand is if you're in the valley, you are in the season where the shepherd is refining you through preparing the table. Don't misunderstand your trial. Now, it's at this point from here to the end of the psalm, David plays a little trick on us. David decides at this point as a master poet that he's going to give us a, a dual comparison between two different things because he saw things to this point. Everything we're going to read to this point is only true for a sheep. But from this moment, in fact, the very moment where he's talking about a table, David sees another table because David is not just a shepherd. David is a king. And while he's being led by his shepherd, he realizes that his shepherd is not just a shepherd. His shepherd is also a king. So when he reads about a table and he reads about an anointing, now suddenly David says, I need you to see this in two senses because your shepherd king is now preparing the table. And what follows are four parallels that I believe will define for us how do we live out success in the kingdom of God. Anybody want your life to count? Anybody want to live worthy of the calling that has been to you? You want to make most of your days, yeah? Yeah. We need to know what success looks like in the kingdom of God. And so we see here in Psalm 23, 5, four parallels, four double meanings. Here's the first one. 
The same way the shepherd leads sheep to a field of abundance, our shepherd leads us to a feast of abundance. Sitting before Jesus' face, excuse me, is success. Sitting before Jesus' face is success. David sees two tables here. The first table he sees is the table of blessing. The table of blessing is the present assurance that the shepherd's sheep will get through the valley and reach the high ground. It's at this place that we receive the kingdom of God. Come on, somebody needs to hear it this morning. Your shepherd's not done with you yet. If you're still breathing, he's not done yet. If you're in a valley, there's a high place to come because the story never ends in the valley. Somebody else needs to hear me this morning. Your story does not end in the valley if you belong to the shepherd. Your winter will end. So the first thing he says is there's a table of blessing. I'm going to bring you from the low place to the high place. It's in this place that we receive the kingdom of God. Oh, but there's a second meaning to that table because it's not just a table of blessing. It's also the banquet table. See, in this, David sees the move from being a shepherd to being a king, and he sees that the banquet table is the present invitation to the beloved sons and daughters of the king to feast and to reign with him even in the presence of their enemies and trials and difficulties. See, if the first table is all about receiving the kingdom, you're in a low place, but he's going to lead you as a sheep through to a high place. Sheep can't do anything to reign. All they can do is follow. There's a table of blessing, but it's not just that because you're not just a sheep. You're also a beloved son or daughter of the king, and in that place you've absolutely been called to reign. It's not just a table of blessing. There's a banquet table. At the table of blessing, you receive the kingdom. At the banquet table, you release it. See, there's something different going on that almost all of us have missed because we read as if we were only sheep. He said he sets a table, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In Hebrew, this word enemy, it means this. It means those who bind, those who narrow my path, those who cause distress, those who show hostility, those who harass, those who besiege, and those who try to force my surrender. Now, don't point around at anybody if that defines any part of what you feel like their presence is in your life. But do we have things in our life that feel like they bind us, like they try to close us in, circumstances and people and places? My enemies. But did you know that this psalm in Hebrew, we missed something in translating it to English because this is literally what it says. It says, you prepare a table for me before your face in the presence of my enemies. Why does that matter? Because the focus of this psalm isn't ever supposed to be on your enemies. You're sitting before the face of your king. See, intimacy with God is success in the kingdom. You want to know how to live a life of success? He said, come and love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Let me say it another way. Give me all of your passion. Give me all of your affection. Give me all of your energy. Give me all of your attention. If you will do that, whether you're in the valley or you're in the high place, that is a life well lived. Living before Jesus' face is success. It's the first one. The second parallel is this. The same way the shepherd cultivates space, he cultivates the dirt to remove poisonous weeds and replenish life-giving minerals, our shepherd cultivates souls 
It's a process called discipleship where he gets down into the dust in which he made us and he reforms us in his image to do what? To remove weeds and to replenish us with life-giving minerals. Surrendering to holiness is success. Now, I don't know about you, but listen, I'm going to give four keys this morning. The first key is that loving Jesus with everything is success. Is there anybody in this room that's disqualified from that one? No matter what you have in your hands, can you give Jesus everything that you have? Oh, my goodness, we can all make it to this one. The second one, surrendering to holiness is success. Now, listen, I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. I only got in two fights in my entire life. I learned enough about fighting, okay? Anybody can surrender. That's what I learned. You got to be strong to win a fight, but to lose one, anybody can do that. Anybody can surrender. And surrendering to holiness is success in the kingdom of God. See, it's not a beauty pageant of the best and the brightest. In fact, it's faith like a child because the more that we think we're an expert, it's actually a hindrance to walking out the fullness of life. You'll stay longer in the valley if you think you're an expert. Because you'll dig your own trenches. That's all you're doing there. (laughs) Success in the kingdom of God is surrendering to holiness. Listen, Paul said it this way in Galatians 5. He says, as you yield... To the, to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, you will abandon the cravings of self-life. The behavior of self-life, what I'll call the weeds, are obvious. What are the weeds of our life if you're a follower of Jesus? Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, pornography, chasing after things instead of chasing after God, manipulating others to get your own way, hatred of those who get in your way, senseless arguments, I want to preach that one loud in all caps. (laughs) Resentment when others are favored. Temper tantrums. Angry angry quarrels. Only thinking of yourself. Being in love with your own opinions. I'll come back to that one later. Being envious of the blessings of others. Murder. Murder uncontrolled addictions, wild parties, and all other similar behavior. Those are the weeds. He says, haven't I already warned you that those who use their freedom for these things will not inherit the kingdom realm of God? You won't reign with God there. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you, the minerals, is divine love in all of its varied expressions. What are they? Joy that overflows. Peace that subdues. Patience that endures. Kindness in action. By the way, it's not kindness unless it's an action. It's just a theoretical hallmark card. A life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and strength of spirit. Now, we know if you've studied this, these are called the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Anybody here walk with the Holy Spirit? Got the Holy Spirit in your life. You said, Jesus, I want you to be king of everything. Right now, I might need to stop because that was like a third of the room. I might be preaching the most powerful outreach message that I ever knew, right here. Has anybody surrendered and said, Jesus, I just want you? If the Holy Spirit is in you, this is the fruit of his presence, which means what? He does it. Your only job is to surrender, to yield. So the question would be this. Is there anywhere you look on your field and you see that you're befriending weeds who are not who you are anymore? See, I believe in Jesus. You've become a really bad sinner. And here's what I mean. You're not good at it anymore. You can't do it convincingly and pull it off anymore. 
When you sin and you run from God, you feel convicted and you feel terrible. Why? Because you're bad at it. Because it's no longer your nature. Because you've been given a new nature and a new heart. That's why I get really upset when people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner. Then you were saved by grace. And now you're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. And that matters because we will live like who we believe we are. And I've watched too many Christians befriend weeds and go, well, this is just my lot in life. And I say, you need to move. You're on a bad lot. We're invited to surrender the weeds of our life. So what is it? Gossip, bitterness, resentment, immorality, jealousy, scarcity, materialism, apathy, comfort. Success in the kingdom of God is surrendering to holiness. All right, so sitting before Jesus' face, that's success. We can all do it, yeah? Surrendering to holiness, that's success. We can all do it, yeah? yeah? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. The third one is this. The same way the shepherd, oh man, now we're going to get here. This has just been intro up to this, y'all. This is what I came to say this morning. The same way the shepherd fills the field with salt so sheep will live and thrive, our shepherd sends us as salt into the field so many will live and thrive. Spending your life for the gospel is success. Now, once again, I've gone through lots of different financial positions in my life. I got an inheritance when my father passed away. So when I first became an adult, um, they told me, you've got a, what feels like to you at 18 years old, an unlimited bank account. You can go buy a new car. You can go to college. You can take your friends out. Oh, my gosh. 19 was a wild year because I spent all kinds of money. I knew what it was to have it. And you know what? Then I knew what it was to get in ministry. <laughs> And I learned the other side of that. I learned what it was to have children. Whew. A lot of them. People said, did you set out to be a large family? No, I didn't. My wife and I said, we think we'll have two. And we had two. And we said, we don't think the Lord's done yet. We'll have a third one. That's cool. We had a third one. We said, you know, I don't think the Lord's done yet. And, and all of a sudden, I was standing up here. It's Easter Sunday one year. And my wife walks in and says, surprise, I'm pregnant. And I said, okay. She said, surprise, it's twins. And I said, I think we're done. When you have a large family, okay? Listen, I don't care if you're rich or you're poor. All of us know how to spend, don't we? Spending is easy. Saving is difficult. So once again, we're talking about something we can all do. Can we all spend? Can you all spend what you have? <laughs> Look at the national debt. We can. We're doing a good job. We, we spend what we don't have, right? That's the problem. We can all spend. So look, this third one is something we can do. Spending your life. For the gospel, by the way, every person will spend their life. Only few will spend it for something that matters. You're going to spend it. Spending your life for the gospel is success. Now, this is where I get deliriously excited, because as I was reading Philip Keller and what happens with sheep, this is what it said. Now, I want you to understand, this isn't trying to write a Bible study. It's just what's happening in nature. It says this, salt is a key mineral that is necessary for sheep to function and grow to maturity. It goes further and says this. It says that salt is the only thing. Somebody say only thing. Salt is the only thing that makes sheep willing to digest all the rest of the minerals they need. Salt, when sheep see it, is very desirable. Without salt, sheep become lethargic, weak, irritable, and begin to shut down. In fact, without salt, sheep inherit a dysfunctional diet, including eating dirt and their own urine. This is what I want you to understand, though. 
Oh man, here we go. We're going to preach. The shepherd doesn't condemn the sheep for having a dysfunctional diet. He fills the field with salt to change their appetite. The shepherd does not condemn the sheep because they have a dysfunctional diet. No, he goes ahead of them while they're still in the valleys and in the low places and in the dirt, and he fills the field with salt to change their appetite. Listen, Jesus says that you are the salt of the world. You're a key mineral that is needed for your family and your neighborhood and your workplace and your church and your city to function and grow to maturity. And listen, if they don't see Christ in you, they will grow lethargic and weak and irritable and shut down and they will develop dysfunctional diets of unnatural things they were never meant to take in. But if they see salt in you, they will find that they can't get enough. See, the shepherd doesn't come to condemn the sheep. No, God so loved the world that what did he do? He filled the field with salt. He said, just a little bit of salt coming through, it'll be enough. And if you watch sheep, you'll find they all have these salt blocks, these salt licks, and they run to them, and they love them. And every shepherd I could possibly read, I read lots of them. I read lots of shepherds. You could talk to Wayne later. He's a farmer. Maybe he would know on it. They said, no, if you just watch sheep with salt. It's crazy. As soon as it shows up, it's a magnet. And I would just tell you, we've got to be done with these days of, oh, I'm just a Christian, and I'm being persecuted. I just want to say this. I- I've talked to a whole lot of people that are angry, and I've never met a person that's angry with Jesus. I've met people that are angry at those who claim the name of Jesus and don't live and love very much like him. But when people encounter the true salt, something changes. The fourth one is this. The same way the shepherd brings the sheep into the light, he takes us from the darkness of the valley into the light to feast in spite of their enemies. Our shepherd is transforming us into lighthouses who invite our enemies until they become God's friends. Radical, relentless, unending love to the undeserving is success in the kingdom of God. He says he prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. I want to tell you this morning that means at least two things. I asked the question, and I said, how many of you got the Holy Spirit? Remember, a third of the room, raise your hand, and you were all like, oh, yeah, that's me too. And then I said, how many of us know enemies? And we were like, I'm going to put up two hands on that one, right? We all say we know the presence of enemies. Well, if he prepares a feast in the presence of my enemies, we already know the enemies are there, but we're not seeing the feast. We need to understand that means at least two things. Number one, if God prepares a feast for me in the presence of my enemies, it means this. My enemies do not possess the authority to infiltrate my intimacy with God. They do not possess the authority. That has to be given. You could give your authority to your enemies. Pretty foolish thing. You could live in a field full of weeds. Pretty foolish thing. But my enemies do not possess the authority to infiltrate my intimacy with God. Why? Because I'm at the table with him. He set a table before his face. His face is all I see. They're somewhere out there. See, it is time for the church to stop empowering that which blocks and narrows our path and bellyaching about what brings stress. And we would see that in broken places, we're called to feast 
because the king is seated at the table. The first thing we'd see, receiving the kingdom, your enemies cannot infiltrate your intimacy with God. Good news? Yeah? We haven't just been called to receive the kingdom, though. We've been called to release it, and here it is. This is the life-transforming one for us today. If that's true, if he sets a table in the presence of my enemies, it means this, that I'm becoming a lighthouse of intimacy with God. It's not just that I've been brought into the light. No, I'm becoming a lighthouse, and as my enemies watch me love him and them in the midst of my trials, they experience an invitation to the table. Come on, somebody. It's not just I'm being brought into the light. No, in Christ, I'm becoming a lighthouse. You are the light of the world. Why? So that men could turn from their wicked deeds and see their father in heaven and run home. And when people see you not live in the lap of luxury, but be opposed and be lied about and be gossiped about and go through hard times and experience trouble and sickness and pain, and you hold on to Jesus and you just look at his face, the only thing left for them to see is there's an invitation for them to at the table. Because he's the hero. He's the focus. I got to tell you, this became real for me in a different, different way. Several weeks ago, we were at a, at a prayer summit. We had 50 or 60 leaders from churches all around our region. And the evening that we came together, they said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We've been praying for all kinds of things for the church and praying all kinds of things, repentance in our own heart and adoration and worship. And he said, listen, this is just going to be a time of intimacy with you and God. And all across the room, they had these four tables set up. One table said, Father, and one table said, Son, and one table said, Holy Spirit, and another one said, Banquet Table. And they said, this is what we're going to do. There's just worship music that is playing. And each of these tables were decorated just beautifully. They said, we just want you to take some time and look at the promises of God, scriptures that are here, and just draw near. And I remember he said something. This is my friend Ryan, mighty man in the kingdom in our city. He said, you might be moved emotionally. Now listen, this is after dinner. I was tired. I was going to be taking a long drive home, and I was like, I doubt it. <laughs> Love you, Ryan. You're putting way too much faith in my ability to feel right now. He said, you might be moved to emotion, and if it does, don't, don't resist it. Just be there. I said, okay. So I went, and immediately when I stood up, I was drawn to the table that said, banqueting table. As I sat down, the banqueting table. It was decorated with this tablecloth and, and, and silverware. It had fine china. It had chocolate set out. And there were several chairs there where you could pull up and see yourself sitting down with Jesus. And right away, I looked at a scripture there. And the scripture was Psalm 23, 5. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I got to tell you what happened was immediately I was moved to emotion. I was like, come on, Ryan, man. I start tearing up. And as I close my eyes, I see a vision. And this is what I see immediately. I see a vision, and it's me and Jesus in a field. It looked a lot like that table that you saw there earlier. And there were people all around me, angry, red-faced, shouting accusations. And these just weren't things they say to other people. No, these were people shouting at me. They were pointing their fingers, and they were raising their fists. They were shouting things like, you're not enough. You compromise the truth. We don't need you, and we don't want you. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus, as I'm looking at all of these enemies, I hear Jesus, I don't see him. I hear his voice, and he says this, softly but firmly, eyes on me. And as I turned, I met the warmest smile of knowing affection and admiration and adoration. And everything else faded. 
I sat at the table, opened my eyes again, and the next scripture I read said this. He brought us to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. And once again, I'm moved with emotion. I'm like, dang it, Ryan, come on! I close my eyes, and the vision continues. Suddenly, Jesus stands up from the table, and he is dancing around me powerfully is the only way I can say it powerfully, majestically strong, and he's holding this banner that is somehow equally red and white. As it's moving, I can't explain how it's both, but it's completely both of these things. And as he goes, he begins spinning around me, and he spins the banner that it surrounds me like this tornado that is just going up, completely surrounding everything I see. And then all at once, as I'm just swept up in it, he pulls the banner down. The red side of the banner comes down, and it's a tent, and it's just me and Jesus at a table. See him placing his hand on my arm, and he's saying something. I can't hear what it is, but I'm just looking that in this moment, I've never been happier. I've never been safer. I'm just here at the banqueting table with my king, but that's not the end of the vision. As I'm looking there, and listen, you can't make this stuff up. Remember I told you, it's a banner. It's red and then white on the other side. Well, it scans on the outside. I'm on inside on the red side, and on the outside, it's not just white. It's translucent. When I look, I'm standing out in the field now with all of the enemies, and I see that every enemy that had been shaking fists, now all they can see is me sitting at the table with Jesus. We're in full sight of them. I can just no longer see their accusations because I'm caught up in the adoration of my king. See, we'll either be caught up in accusation or we'll be caught up in adoration, but he set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Why? Let's go back to the words of Jesus. You ready for this? It's going to blow your mind. Matthew chapter 5, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others. Who? Your enemies, those who oppose you, those who are angry, those who shake their fists, those who say we don't need you, we don't want you. Eyes on me, not eyes on them. And when you live in that place, they will see your good deeds and come to glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, i got to tell you something I'm tired of hearing in this verse. God did not set up a table in the presence of your enemies so you could watch him smite them because he's filled with wrath. God set up a table in the presence of your enemies because God so loved the world and he sees sheep that have developed dysfunctional diets and your salt. And if they can see what you could have at the table with him, they're going to run in and they're going to be changed. He's not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient, eagerly desiring that all men would come to the truth. While we were his enemies, he died for us. Why in the world are we thinking he's coming to smite our enemies? He says, no, while they're your enemies, I died for them. And if you'd stop looking and getting caught up in their accusation and get caught up instead in my adoration, eyes on me, I want to tell you something. They're watching in the field. And when they see the substance of the salt, they're going to get past all of their accusations. And they're going to find that there's another table, another seat at the table. When you and him live in unbroken delight at the table, despite your opposition, despite your pain, despite your setback, despite your heartbreak, it is the world's greatest invitation to experience Jesus. Psalm 23.5 is a rescue mission, and you and I are front and center on display. What is success in the kingdom of God? If he came to give life to its fullest, what is it? Listen, success is intimacy with God. 
Success is surrender to holiness. Success is spending our lives for the gospel. And success is not allowing our love to grow cold or our hearts to get hard, but continuing to give away relentless, radical love, especially to those who are undeserving. So there's just one more question. How do we do it? Ah, there's the end of the verse. Because it can't be done in our own power. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, I have so much to say on this. I want to tell you, I, I've written two blogs this week to go out. I hope that you're getting the blogs, the things that we're writing, because a lot of times what I preach here is something that can lead us to a decision in this moment. What I will blog is something I need you to read over and over and over again, because maybe there's a rut in our mind where we need to go back and we need to just think and renew our mind on the truth of God. This issue of the anointing, i got to tell you, there's three insights I'm going to share in the blog tomorrow that will come tomorrow morning to you that share exactly three reasons a shepherd would regularly anoint his sheep. If all that with the salt blew your mind, this stuff is just straight up crazy. I also share seven different results of anointing in our life. And then Thursday this week, I'm going to blog, and that blog is all about we're going to the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' upside-down definition of what a life of success really looks like and how you're positioned better than you know to live it. All that said, this is what I want to say right now, this moment. If what I've been preaching this morning is your heart, you need his anointing. The word to anoint, what it literally means is it means to take oil and to smear or saturate or completely cover. From the beginning of the Old Testament, they would anoint things for protection, for abundance. The Bible told us that the Holy Spirit comes to anoint us with healing and joy and discipleship and power and maturity that we would live a life worthy of our calling without falling or fainting. For all of those, we need the anointing. And when you live under God's anointing, his supernatural empowering, the byproduct is that your cup overflows. See, this is the final thing I want to share with you, and we're going to pray. That last word of Psalm 23, my cup overflows. We've gone from the valley now to the high place, and he says, now the shepherd has come. He did it. He anointed me. It wasn't my performance. I didn't figure it out. All I did was surrender, and he anointed me, and as a result, my cup flows. What does that mean? I'm satisfied, intoxicated, drenched, and abundantly filled to excess. I want you to know that whatever you and I truly receive in the kingdom of God, we naturally release because he always gives too much for us to hold. That's the beauty of the simple gospel. As we are wrecked by his love, our life will be full of opportunities to walk as former beggars and former enemies, to lead beggars and enemies to pull up a seat at the table with us and feast. And here's why this matters, guys. Because the only thing, somebody say only thing. The only thing needed for all of this to be true is his anointing. And the only thing needed for a sheep to get anointed is to humble themselves and stand before the face of their shepherd. He's calling us. He's got his oil held out ready to fully anoint you. The question is, will you come? Would you stand with me? Here's what I want to do this morning. Normally, at this point, I have the intercessors come up, and they're going to come in a minute, but not yet. 
This first charge I want to give to everybody in the room. I want nobody to move in these next few minutes because there are four very quick charges that I see for you and I if we're going to surrender to his anointing. I want to ask a few questions. We're going to do a little business with God, and then there's going to be an invitation that if this is you, no more effort, no more trying, no more figuring it out. If you're saying, I want that life, then we're going to have a moment of obedience to come before the shepherd and trust him to meet us there and anoint us. Does that sound good? I'm going to ask you to lay your hand on your heart. Just close your eyes for a minute because I just want to get rid of any other distraction. Just you and Jesus now. You're at the table with Jesus. Here are the questions I want to ask. The first question is this. Where do you need to reposition your life to sit before Jesus' face? Is there any place you've been empowering all of your trials, empowering all the places you feel you need to run, and all he's asking you to do right now is just drop it? It looks like this, hand on your heart, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for so many other things getting my attention and my affection. I'm sorry for getting caught up in anxiety about so many things I see in this moment. That it's me and you in a tent at a table. And I choose to come, eyes on you. Would you tell him that right now? Jesus, I want to live with my eyes on you. Jesus, I want to live with my eyes on you. Jesus, would you remove distraction? Would you reorient my life? I want to live with my eyes on you. Second question I want to ask is this. What weeds need to be uprooted for the minerals of the Holy Spirit to fill your field? Come on, when we were reading that passage, does something come up and you go, oh, I do that? Was it gossip or bitterness? If you're being honest, is it apathy? Are you caught in some place of immorality with your eyes or your mind, or your actions? Is it worry or anger? Or do you walk with this mindset of rejection, always believing that everybody believes the worst about you or doesn't see you? If that's it, this is all I'm going to ask right now, that you say, Jesus, I do that. I do that. But I don't believe that's who I am in you anymore. I don't want to hold that thing anymore, and I'm asking you to come meet with me. I'm not talking willpower here, guys. I'm talking surrender. Come on, with somebody in the room, hand on your heart, be willing to say, God, here's a weed that's in my life. I do that. And I'm coming to ask you to uproot it. I want to put all of my attention and all of my affection on you. The third question I want to ask is where is God calling you to live as salt in your field? Come on, is there a place that you need to go to him and say, Jesus, I'm sorry? for making my family and my job and my neighborhood and my church about me. I'm sorry for thinking about all the things I need to get and am I happy and how am I feeling? And I'm just asking right now that you'd open my eyes to see the field that you've placed me in differently because there's a place I carry you that others need it. I wanna be salt. Come on, would somebody tell them that? I wanna be salt, Lord. I wanna be salt. I'm sorry for putting my attention on me. Here's the last question, and then we're going to watch God do something crazy. Who is positioned as an enemy in your life? An opponent? A resentment? Somebody who makes life difficult? Somebody who irritates you? that today you need to stop 
holding a fist toward them and you need to open your hand in invitation to pray that they would get the grace to find a seat at the table with you. Now listen, I understand all kinds of things might have happened. I understand that for a lot of reasons you might not be able to walk in community with this person. They might not be safe. I get all of that. Who is it that is positioned in your life in enmity, in anger, in frustration, that right now you need to drop the fist and see yourself right now even dropping the fist and saying, God, give me the grace not only to forgive, but give me the grace to be a lighthouse. I ask that you'd give them a seat at the table. This time I want to invite our prayer ministers up front. And ministers, as you come right here in the center, there are vials of oil. I'm just going to ask you to grab those. Everybody else in the room while they're getting set, this is what I heard from the Lord. So often we come to moments like this and we hear truth and we think, oh, that's good, I'm going to work harder on that. But it doesn't say, he set a table for the sheep in the presence of their enemies and the sheep by their hard work and their dedication and their thoughts found a way to conquer. It says, no, he prepares it and then he anoints them. This is what I'm going to ask this morning. If you've heard my voice, my heart, if you're hearing me right now on our live stream, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing right from where you are, right from your living room, that you'd walk in the same place. We're going to surrender to his anointing. Each one of our prayer ministers, they're holding oil, and this is what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask if the Lord is telling you for any reason we just talked about, I need his anointing. I'm just going to trust because the Lord said this, that his grace is going to meet us here. Nothing magical about the oil, nothing magical about the intercessor, but there's something powerful about obedience. I'm going to ask in just a moment, if you need the anointing of the Lord, that you would come to one of these ministers and allow them to anoint your head and to call for God's blessing and his victory and his abundance and his peace and his discipleship and his joy to flood your life. And I believe the goodness of my Father that in their obedience and your obedience, something's going to happen. God's going to fall in the midst of this moment and prepare you for the coming season. So right now, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to come out from your seat. Come straight to one of these intercessors. Allow them to anoint you. Intercessors, just begin to pray as they come. Just begin to pray as they come. If you need an anointing from the Lord right now, I'm going to ask you, come straight to one of these intercessors. Allow them to pray for you. Father, we call right now and we ask for your joy to fall. Father, we ask for your joy to fall. I'm going to ask if that's you, just come. Just come. You need an anointing from the Lord, just come. 